you know, what's really sticking with me is just how important it is not to let the findings of this report or it's even its way of analyzing the, the problem in basic needs and security as a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we are, there's this report is analyzing the Hope Center data in a given year, but hundreds of colleges are running student basic needs surveys. Some states are doing it, you know, in a coordinated way. Each of them should be analyzing the race and ethnicity gaps among their students and taking it on and seeing what it means for them. Um, Hope Center does that with colleges directly, help them sort of, you know, crack open their data and look at the gaps um, and implications. But, you know, this really should be happening every single day um, and helping inform policy going forward to, to be able to understand uh, disparate impacts here. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing the report from the HOPE Center on the implications of racial inequities on basic needs and security during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined by folks involved with this report based on a survey of almost 200,000 college students and numerous focus groups. I'm looking forward to discussing the findings, the implications, and the recommendations for campus leaders and policy. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, an author, and coach helping leaders and organizations make transformations for leadership, learning, and equity. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. So I'm really excited to have folks here joining us today. Uh, love to have you come in and introduce yourselves. You all have been working with this report, uh, sharing it and the implications, and love to hear more. Rajal, let's begin with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Keith. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, my name is Raja. I use both they, them, and she, her pronouns. Either are fine. Um, and a really cool anecdote I like to share when introducing myself is that my name means hope in Arabic, and I work at the Hope Center, which is just a very funny coincidence for me. <laughs> so I work as a communications associate at the Hope Center. I am involved in formatting reports, uh, disseminating them, handling social media, handling our newsletter. So I just have like my fingers and everything that we're producing. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. And Bryce, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, thanks for having us, Keith. Um, hard to follow Rajat because I'm not sure that I bring hope into the uh, conversation because <laughs> I work in the, uh, the area of policy. Um, but uh, named Bryson Kibben and uh, use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Hope Center. So I lead all of our work um, focusing on sort of what's going on in federal government uh, and nationally across the country, which can be a little depressing sometimes when we're looking for more action from our policymakers. Um, but uh, always happy to uplift uh, what's going on in the field of student basic needs and try to help us find solutions. Yeah, well, we've got hope and practical. And let's turn to uh, Frank. Tell us a little bit about you. Hey, how you doing, Keith? Uh, pleasure to be here. Frank Harris III, he, him, his pronouns. Um, have the pleasure of serving as a professor in the post-secondary education program at San Diego State. 
And I also co-direct the Community College Equity Assessment Lab at SDSU as well. And I've been involved in equity-centered research uh, for well over a decade now. And so this work around basic needs and securities uh, falls in line with a lot of our work on racial, uh, racial equity. Um, we, we do some work that's focused on um, student health and wellness, mental health. And so this is all a part of a, um, a long research agenda to really uh, to institutionalize equities in ways that um, are beneficial for our students um, and the institutions in which they are enrolled. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's great to be with you all. L loved reading the report and some of the implications and some of the things noticed. But just for folks who are not as familiar, we'll share a link to it in the show notes so you can get it. Um, and it came out about two months before uh, this episode will air. So folks may have seen it and coming back to it. Uh, but Rajah, first, help us understand how this research was done and some of the major findings from the results. Yeah, of course. Um, so I feel like for me, the research report while I was like designing it and also like just, you know, involved in efforts to disseminate it. Um, one thing that really like struck me was the fact that we shouldn't be still be talking about inequity in 2023. Uh, like we we have advanced so much as a society, I feel like, but racial inequities continue to plague literally every aspect of our life, including college um, access. And I feel like a lot of the times we, time to, we tend to think that, you know, slavery and indigenous genocide that happened um, at the inception of like the United States, like that's all in the past, but those inequities and those justice issues, like they're still very much prevalent. And, you know, one thing that really struck me was the fact that black and indigenous students continue to face like super high rates of basic needs and security mm -hmm. at about 70%. So I feel like we love to throw numbers around in academia, but to me, it's just really concerning that seven in 10 students who are black and indigenous face like food insecurity, housing insecurity, and so many other forms of basic needs and securities. And I feel like especially with the context of Thanksgiving coming up, hmm. I feel like we have this tendency to really like sugarcoat and whitewash our history and make it seem like it wasn't as mm -hmm. bad. But, you know, at the same time, critical race theory, education about that is continuing to get banned throughout the country. And we just really need to reckon with our history and really need to understand the implications of that that continue to harm Indigenous and Black students as well as other Brown students. So we found out like really high rates of basic needs and security among non-white student populations, um, as well as really high rates of mental illness amongst those people. Indigenous women are the most likely to face anxiety and depression while attending college. And, you know, really need to understand that not only are they facing high rates of basic needs and security, they're also facing all of these intersecting challenges mm -hmm. that make it so hard for them to remain in college and persist in college. And, you know, we like to think of like the promise of higher education as something that's going to help people succeed and gain upward social mobility. But the reality is that's not the case for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at a world where a college degree costs like around sixty to $70,000 per year. And that, that's at the lower end. That's just tuition. And that's more than what many families make in a year. And we're looking at students who don't have parental support to support themselves through college, mm -hmm. who are employed throughout college to make ends meet. And, you know, 
a lot of like, you know, this delusion of capitalism and the American dream is that if you work hard, you're going to eventually get there. But a lot of these students, they don't have the same starting point as so many white students, so many upper middle class students. So no matter how hard they try, they're going to continue to face really dire inequities. And I feel like that is just so, it should not be happening in mm -hmm. 2023. It's like we are so beyond that point where like we need to understand like our history and then also connect it with what's going on in the present. Sadly, those issues, they're not only prevalent, they're actually getting worse as time goes by. And we see that even students who are employed, even they face like 70 to 80%, 70 to 80% of them are basic needs insecure. Mm -hmm. So they're working hard, they're trying their best, but the system is not designed for them. And I feel like that begs this bigger question of, is the system failing or is was the system built this way? Is it like operating as it was supposed to be? Because um, I feel like the system was very much designed to lock out Black and Indigenous students. And we are seeing, seeing that around us right now. And I feel like the system of higher education that's so profit-driven, I feel like we need to do away with that. And we need to just figure out a way to center students and really make sure that we're supporting them the best. Yeah, so thank I you, Frank. Oh, sorry, Keith. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say Frank can obviously um, expand more on the methodology, but for me, it was just really heartbreaking to see all yeah. of these numbers. Yeah, and I'd love to hear, Frank, for, for more about uh, the research and how it was done. Uh, almost 200,000 students in the fall of 2020, so in the first six months-ish of COVID's impact and some focus groups that happened uh, even earlier than that, um, tell us a little bit, and Rajah highlighted some of the sort of big headlines, the big striking things. Tell us a little bit more about um, the research and and some of the, the findings. Yeah, thank you. And um, thank you, Rajah, for, for sort of, you know, establishing the context and, and getting us going and really helping us understand that, you know, despite all of the efforts and the supports um, that are in place, our students are really struggling, um, you know, and the students who need to, to support the most, and perhaps the students who maybe have the most to gain, um, mm -hmm. you know, from access and completion of higher education are the ones that are most, seem to be most vulnerable at this time, which is, which is really concerning uh, for all of us. You know, in terms of the research, we know the, the Hope Center has a long history of um, doing work to really help elevate and illuminate um, you know, institutional and, you know, policymakers' attentions around, you know, the, the prevalence of basic needs and securities uh, amongst college students in particular. Um, and so this project allowed us to really access some of the data that the Hope Center had collected, you know, right around the onset and in the early phases of the pandemic, as Keith shared, um, you know, it's a very robust data set, um, you know, spanning, you know, hundreds of thousands of students and, you know, many institutions. And then um, the work that I do and my colleagues at SEAL, you know, a lot of our work has been qualitative in nature. And so during the pandemic and around that time, we had been asked by, you know, a handful of our partner institutions to do some student focus groups, um, you know, to kind of really understand what are their lived experiences, you know, not just around basic needs and securities, but around the pandemic, around the racial reckoning, which is a, you know, important focus of this project as well. And just mm -hmm. kind of help understand, you know, what are they experiencing? You know, how are they making sense of the world in which they're living in? You know, what institutional supports and what, you know, community supports 
are, are helping them? Are they finding helpful and useful in making their way through? And then what advice and what are some things that they think institutions could be doing to better serve and better support them? And so this project that allowed us to bring all of that, that work together, together and all the data together. And the end result is this report that we have. Um, and, you know, again, to Rajaj's point, the, the, you know, one of the big takeaways for me is the, 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 the incredibly complex and intersectional nature, you know, of basic needs and securities, right? It's, it's, it's the women of color, right? It's, it's, it's women who may be uh, parents, um, you know, it's students who may be a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, right? Which can exacerbate basic needs and securities because of family dynamics. Um, you know, it's students who are working, uh, but not earning a livable wage, right? It's students who are enrolled, but maybe they're attending online and that's that's having some impact, you know, on their access and their success, you know, the access to resources and success. And so there's all these layers that really complicate uh, our understanding of basic needs and securities, you know, both their prevalent uh, as well as their impact. And the other big takeaway, I think, is that we we hope that this report provides you know, again, some impetus for, you know, folks who are in a position to actually do something about it, whether we're talking about our policymakers or whether we're talking about institutional leaders who who have some impact on how resources are deployed to students. Um, you know, this this podcast is primarily for our colleagues in student affairs. And so we know that oftentimes it's our colleagues in student affairs who are, you know, best positioned to sort of recognize what's happening with students but also often have the knowledge and awareness of, of campus and community supports that are available to them. Um, and so it's just really kind of bringing this information together in a way that uh, provides a transparent understanding, but hopefully more importantly, that really helps to understand and provide some urgency to this. Um, and, 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 you know, the other thing I'll add is really sort of seeing this as a holistic issue, right? So the report is about, basic needs and securities, but we know that there's implications for students in their mental health and wellness. We know that there's implications for students in their academic success, their persistence and retention, you know, in their, their career development, right? There's all these other mm -hmm. things that are impacted. And I think this report does, um, you know, I think a good job of sort of elevating that in many ways because of, you know, the, the data that was, uh, you know, used to, to write and develop it. Mm -hmm. I love your point about the, the students who are most struggling are the ones who have the most promise and potential uh, and mm -hmm. the most need for success through uh, higher education attendance and completion. And I think you're right, too, when we think about student affairs professionals. I don't I don't know that any student affairs professionals are surprised by what this report illustrates from their experience. Um, but it's nice to have the data and nice to have the data be on their campus, right? We maybe are thinking about the students who I interact with and I see, and is that story accurate? Or is our, I see this on our campus and what's wrong with us and why are we struggling? But to see that these are, are um, data, reliable, large data set, as you pointed to, broadly happening, I think gives us a better perspective and a better way at challenging and, and addressing some of this. Bryce, I know we're going to get here in a little bit to the implications for campus leaders and policymakers. I want to just see if you have anything to add. Um, what stands out for you from this report? What really, um, you, you work in this realm, you're talking with policy leaders. What are some of the things from this report that you find wanting at your fingertips to sort of explain and help people understand this? 
Yeah, I, I think Rajal and Dr. Harris spoke to the larger implications much better than I could, but I just want to situate the context of the data too. I mean, this is a survey that's been run for about 10 years now from the Hope Center and from our predecessor, but also replicated by hundreds of institutions and even state um, agencies across the country. Mm -hmm. And it is, a, it is a rigorously designed study that has been pressure tested and it captures a really wide range of information around what students are experiencing. I think people's first um, way of getting to know the, the student basic needs field is often around food security. You know, are, are do folks have enough to eat? Are they able to afford groceries? And we know that that's a huge problem now as a result of, of um, significant inflation during the, the pandemic, but it is so much broader than that. It is, you know, housing probably the largest costs that students are, are facing in higher education. It's childcare if they're a parenting student, which is, you know, a much more prevalent um, a cost than most folks are aware. It's healthcare. Um, uh, it's a it's a huge range, and I think just to situate having reliable data in the context of a um, emerging pandemic, but then also the the sort of post what now period, we saw this huge decline in students enrolling in higher education, in part because we had a pandemic going on, unprecedented circumstances. Um, you know, we're still missing about a million students relative to what we had pre-pandemic levels enrolled in higher education. So people decided to change their 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 trajectory of where they wanted to go and when they wanted to go to higher ed, whether they valued it at all. And coming out of that pandemic period, trying to attract those students back to higher education, we have to wrestle with this very rigorous data, sort of staring us in the face. Yeah of the uh, incredible equity problems we have in our campus, right? We have enormous race and ethnicity gaps in the types of services that students are able to access and support. So not only higher prevalence rates, but also the students who are most likely to struggle are the least likely to access all of the supports that folks have put into place. And we can't stop at things like, you know, oh, there's a food pantry on campus, so we've solved the problem. This report and the data paint such a bigger systemic issue um, and implications for, for both campuses and, more, and, and policymakers that we're going to talk about. But I just wanted to say, you know, in terms of what it means for us as a higher education system overall, it is that this problem is urgent. It is deeply tied to who goes to higher education, who's able to afford it, and definitely who is able to complete yeah, and I think we often use sort of the the new narrative of rather than look for college ready students, how do we make student ready colleges, right? Which sounds good. And then how do you do that? And I think this report says here are the big gaps. The students are struggling in ways that wasn't always the case. We have better understandings. The breadth and access and who we're trying to draw and who we're trying to make available is really shifting and changing. And if we're going to be a student ready college, or community college or university or institution or technical college, that means different things. And I think this really highlights what that means in providing the kind of structures and support to meet students and the challenges they're navigating. Let's shift I to campus. I you know, also want to offer too, Keith, this not necessarily the new student. We, we may have actually just been uncovering what students were experiencing yeah for the last decade, and we're only finally just understanding the full implications of these, these gaps too. So it's a yes and to your, to your comment. We, we're, we're shifting the practices in higher education, but we're also catching up to what we probably should have been paying attention to yeah. for the last 20 years. Yeah. 
Great point. Great point. I want to shift to the the what what can campus leaders do? And I'm thinking not just presidents and VPs, but also directors and assistant directors and new professionals who are leading at all places in the organization. Um, Frank, in a previous life, you were a student affairs professional. Uh, we still we still claim you. Um, yeah. What what do you see as you're looking through the data, uh, through the report? What sort of stands out to you um, as something that really should draw the attention and that campus leaders should really be prioritizing to help address some of this? Yeah, thank you, Keith. And I, I, I still, I still identify as a student affairs educator and researcher. Right? It's still good, good, very, very much a part of my my professional identity. Uh, what should student affairs educators do? Yeah. Um, I think more of what what we've been trained to do, right? Really knowing our students and really um, trying to provide opportunities for voice, right? Either for students to share in their own voice, you know, what's, um, you know, what's impacting them. And then also for, for student affairs educators to be the voice of students when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to, you know, um, championing and, and, and coming up with policies and resources that we know are critical to their success. Um, I think it's also important for student affairs educators to, to know the students on your campus. So this report, um, you know, the great thing about it is that it, you know, because of the data that's collected, it does capture, it, it's a pretty wide net in terms of who's represented. But what we also know is that, um, you know, every institution is its own institution, has its own culture, you know, has its own assets, and has its own liabilities in many respects, right? So understanding kind of how, you know, a student who's at uh, an urban community college that, you know, maybe they're not, it, where there's no residential community, mm -hmm. right? How they may be experiencing this and how that may be different from a student who's at, you know, a, a royal four-year institution where there is a residential community. And how, you know, how does that provide an opportunity to help students, and what challenges does that create in being able to identify the students who need to support the most? Um, I think professional, ongoing professional learning, right? As, as student affairs educators, we have to continue to commit to learning more about this, uh, whether that means we're reading more, whether that means we're attending, you know, conferences, webinars, and even more importantly, is taking what we're learning and you know, sharing it with our colleagues, making sure that it's a part of our the day-to-day -day operations and briefings that we have on a regular basis. We're, we're talking about it in staff meetings. These are data-informed conversations, you know, both in terms of you know what data in a report like this might say, but even more importantly, what is our institutional data, you know, uh, saying to us? And, and by data, I, I don't mean just you know sort of the quantitative, traditional quantitative data. I'm, I'm talking about you know, um, any data that you collect, you can collect that provides some understanding of uh, students' lived experiences. And then, you know, the, the resources, making sure that the resources that are in place are actually effective, um, that they're reaching the students who need them, um, that they are, you know, doing a good job of making sure that students get what they need from them. Um, and that might mean doing something that we traditionally didn't have to do, right? Uh, going into the classroom, perhaps partnering with our faculty colleagues who we may not identify as student affairs folks, right? But who may be well positioned to help identify students who may need support. Um, 
early alert systems. I know a lot of institutions have, you know, early alert systems and ways of identifying students who may be struggling, uh, really making sure that we understand, you know, what those those resources are on our campus and making sure that if there are alerts, that those alerts get to the right people as soon as possible. Um, so those are those are some things that immediately come to mind. I'm sure that there's more mm -hmm. uh, that can be said, but I think those are, you know, when I think about where do we start, um, you know, those four or five things are the things that immediately come to mind. I'm thinking about making sure that those resources exist. Yeah. Making sure that students know about them and that they're destigmatized is really coming to mind as I'm, I'm hearing you. Uh, yeah. Bryce, what what sort of pops for you in terms of uh, what what where should campus leaders be nudged here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the implications for how you change uh, institutional supports and practice. I mean, there there are just dozens and dozens of them, but you know, at a at a larger level, the need to create a culture of care and inclusion mm -hmm. for Black and Brown students has really never been more important. I think this data quantifies that, right? The larger mm -hmm. context of this data is that we have legislation in 22 states attacking diversity, equity, inclusion. We have a Supreme Court, you know, that has ruled against race conscious admissions. We have um, record levels of, uh, of, of hate crimes uh, occurring across the country. This is a hostile environment for black and brown students right now. It is difficult to enter higher education and feel safe, let alone included in the daily activities of an institution. And this is a call to action for campus leaders to be able to recognize the larger context in which their students are trying to um, access higher education and succeed, right? So, it, you know, at a, at a very higher level, I think it, it, it calls on our campus leaders to message the importance of a fully diverse and inclusive environment on campus. Um, that, you know, only when uh, everyone has equitable access to the supports on campus and to, uh, and is feeling heard by their administrators, are students actually going to feel welcome to begin with. Well, Rajah, one of the reasons we like hope so much is it reminds us that change is possible, things can be different, things can improve. What do you see as what uh, folks who are on a particular campus can do uh, to mitigate some of these racial inequities? And uh, as Frank pointed out, these intersectional things around gender, around sexual orientation, around so many different things. Uh, what do you, where would you like to nudge campus leaders? Yeah, um, I feel like this is such a great question and Bryce and Dr. Harris have expanded on it super well. But one thing I would like to add is that there is a very big need for us to center student voices because I feel like higher ed administration, it's pretty overwhelmingly white across the board and the people who are making the decisions, they don't accurately represent the students who are actually experiencing these conditions that we're talking about. Um, you know, I feel like there's so many just multitudes of experiences when it comes to students and mm -hmm. I feel like there is a need to bring students to the table and treat them as the experts that they are um you know I I know two two or three years ago when I was in college um I was making 725 an hour working as a student worker um and that's the federal minimum wage and I was talking to a student um last week and they told me that's what they make now um and that's not even enough to buy a meal on campus mm -hmm. so higher ed leaders they need to understand that the reality the realities of students today are very or like they were always this way as Bryce said mm -hmm. they need to understand that students are they need help and they need to be brought to the table 
um, and they are experts in their experiences. Um, I also feel like we need to expand the perception of basic needs. Um, I feel like a lot of the times when people hear the word basic needs, they think of food and housing, as Bryce, I think, mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Digital access is a basic need. Mm -hmm. um, in this report, we found that, you know, an overwhelming amount of students who are Indigenous don't have access to Wi-Fi or a computer. And, you know, in today's world, especially in this pandemic era where everything is increasingly digital, like how do you expect students to access Zoom or like their online homework or, you know, Canvas and Blackboard when they don't even have a stable Wi-Fi or internet connection? Like they're literally not set up for success. Um, and then mental health is another big one um, as transphobia is rising, as Islamophobia is rising, anti-Semitism, anti-Blackness, like so many different isms are just intersecting with each other and making it so, so hard on our students. And anxiety and depression, the rates of those two are so high and the mental health crisis is truly just bonkers right now. Like you're expecting students to deal with the pandemic and deal with hate crimes and deal with the pressure of going to college while also juggling work. There is so much pressure on them and I feel like they need to be brought to the table and their experiences need to be centered. Um, and I feel like they need to be treated as equals too because a lot of the times like while we're working in this space, there can be a tendency to speak over students or like regard ourselves as their like saviors when in reality students are perfectly capable of supporting themselves we just need to make sure the system is better designed to support them yeah and if i could just build on rajah's point really quickly too like you know listening to what the students are telling us through the data in should inform what the campuses are doing i mean the, the, the survey data are showing very clearly that those who are struggling, who are saying, yes, I'm experiencing basic needs and security, they're not accessing campus supports. Like less than a third, generally speaking, of students who, who are saying, I am not having enough to eat, I'm having trouble uh, putting a, a roof over my head, are actually being able to, to, to re access anything to ameliorate those concerns. And so if, our, if we see racial equity gaps in the problem, we also need to make sure that the uh, potential intervention of the thing we do to try to solve that problem is also targeted mm -hmm. um, to the students who are most at, at risk of experiencing the problem to begin with. And so far, it kind of seems like mostly campus leaders aren't thinking about that latter part. Um, and there can be sometimes a tendency to, to blame students too for their own um, problems, you know, I think uh, in in higher education we often encounter the the concept that well, it's it's stigma that is is the roadblock that you know students just don't want to use the the supports available or you know they're embarrassed. Um, that in the data actually show is not the most significant problem. You know that we shouldn't be blaming students for their own problem. It's actually that the that the supports and the resources are really hard to navigate, um, or they come with you know just buckets of red tape, um, or it's complicated. Um, I mean, the, the most significant um, barriers are, are really informational. You know, I didn't think I was eligible or I, I didn't know how to apply. Um, so if we really look at what the information is telling us, it's we need to make these resources simpler, easier to access. Um, we need to be able to, to put them all in one place rather than having students to go from one office to the next to figure out where they're you know, oh, this one deals with financial aid. This one deals with supports for housing. This one deals with with food supports. Put it in one place. Put it mm -hmm. in a in a in a public benefits hub or a resource or you know a single point of contact. These types of implications for campuses, based on what the students are actually telling us in the data, I think is such an important um, next step for for our leaders. Yeah, and I think how yep. do we 
shift from, hey, here's our offices, here's how we're organized and teaching students how to navigate that. How do we get organized in a way that aligns with how students are navigating that college experience, particularly the students who are the most marginalized and in the most need. If we can organize around them, it's gonna work for others. And if I could, uh, excellent points, um, you know, all three of you make. If I could add to that, like if if an institution knows a significant proportion of their student body is struggling, right? Struggling financially, you know, struggling with basic needs and securities. Well, in some ways, I think there's some things that you can almost take sort of a universal design approach to this, right? Mm -hmm. Is there an opportunity? Like, if, can we make parking free on campus? Do we really need to charge students to park, right? Um, Compton College uh, in, in the Los Angeles area of California, uh, every student who attends there gets at least one free meal a day, right? Whether you're, you know, you identify as a student with a basic needs and security or not. Um, there's certain, I, I think there's certain things that institutions can do just as a matter of basic practice and making it available to all their students that will kind of help to address some of these barriers and concerns that I think Bryce did a great job of, of sort of the, the red tape and the bureaucracy that gets in a way of accessing, you know, needed supports. And I, and, you know, I know sometimes student, uh, uh, institutions feels like, well, we have to make sure that these resources go to these particular students and we don't want to, you know, sort of deploy them to everyone. Well, if again, right, if you know most of your students are struggling with this in one way or another, then what's it matter if a few more students gets a free meal, right? I mean, you know, I, I think it's worth, that's a, that's, that's an acceptable cost to making sure that the support is available for everyone that needs it when they need it without a whole lot of hoops to jump through to actually get it. Yeah, great. We've talked about um, the findings from this uh, research really outlining the results of these systemic inequities, talked about some advice for campus leaders and campus-based institutional-based things. Let's talk about policies beyond the individual campus. Uh, Bryce, this is your wheelhouse. What? Uh, I can see you're ready to go. Go. What should we be doing at a policy level beyond the individual student and the individual campus on a broader scale? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's such a perfect segue from what Dr. Harris was, was talking about, the importance of universal programs, you know, lowering barrier to entry. During the pandemic, we actually experimented in policy with universal programs, and it was a huge success, right? We dramatically expanded the child tax credit. We provided like $40 billion in emergency aid grants to students with very few strings attached, not asking for them, you know, to, to performatively prove they're poor 18 times, right? We, we, we actually expanded the social safety net in this country, and then we let it all expire mm -hmm. at the end of the public health emergency. And these pro problems that we, you know, are documenting in this report and, and, and you know, they, they aren't, they weren't just happening during the pandemic. They were there before. And in many ways, they're worse now um, because of the cost increases of, of food and housing and gas and, and all of those things. So if you really want to think about, like, what are the implications for federal policy? A good way to sum it up would be maybe revive some of the programs that we had in place during the pandemic that were actually working um, and help them uh, help students succeed, in particular, emergency aid. I'll say that this is this is an area of focus for us, you know, for the first time ever, federal government invested in, in emergency aid programs in every college in the country, and it was open to, 
you know, millions and millions of students instead of being, you know, one, uh, you know, well-meaning donor at an individual school or one, you know, progressive state was willing to invest in it. We had a comprehensive approach to making um, some funds available for things that come up when you're just a human living your life, you know, a car breaks down or an unexpected medical bill, or you need emergency childcare um, in order to get to class, like the, the things that, that can kind of cascade into bigger basic needs challenges. We could revive that emergency aid um, investment, um, either by, you know, putting some more money into it, or even making our existing financial aid program more flexible. We've got a report on how we could use the the Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant, or SEOG, it's about a billion dollars a year, um, uh, could be uh, could be used as emergency aid. It was during the pandemic. It sunsetted. Why not revive it? It's no cost to taxpayers. Um, the other thing that we spend a lot of time on right now, trying to, to to bring this back to scale, is you know a more comprehensive, proactive effort to connect students to public and tax benefits. You know, just we were talking a, a few minutes ago that the, the take up rate, the amount of students who are actually using resources um, available to them is very low and in, in part because they are incredibly complicated. So let's put in place the supports to make that less complex and actually help students navigate the process, um, helping uh, identify those who are already eligible for something like the SNAP program and getting uh, uh, EBT benefits. Um, uh, uh, WIC, TANF, Medicaid, the sort of long list of, of you know, federal alphabet soup acronyms, we could do a much better job actually connecting students at a policy level to those programs. And we're seeing states kind of try to do this in lieu of the federal government, but um, there is absolutely more room to, uh, at the federal government, sort of automate this um, and, and have a, a, a more comprehensive approach to students' financial security rather than just assuming that if they you know, went and filled out the FAFSA or their financial aid form that they suddenly have all the resources um, mm -hmm. available to them. We just know that that's not the case. So uh, a couple, you know, I, I think public benefits writ large, and it's just broadly defined, is is, is going to be key to, to addressing some of the barriers students are facing. I love that you included both policy change, the things that were required legislation, and that's great. It can feel a little out of our locus of control, but also some things that campuses can do to connect students with existing things in their community at the state level, at the federal level, that maybe they're available, but just aren't connecting for a lot of the reasons that you pointed to. Rajal, what are you seeing? What are what are some of the implications beyond the campus context that you'd like to suggest? Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like Bryce touched on the public health crisis of COVID-19. I feel like we are actually dealing with multiple public health crises. Um, you know, transphobic laws continue to get passed um, at the state level. So gender-affirming care is not accessible mm -hmm. for a lot of students. Um, on a similar way, reproductive access, um, menstrual access, you know, a lot of the times we'll see like a college will put like menstruation products in like the women's restroom, but there can be students who menstruate who are not women. So I feel like policymakers really need to support these efforts that are going on in individual campuses. Again, I'm not as proficient in policy as Bryce is, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like as these like really disgusting transphobic laws and laws restricting reproductive access keep getting passed, um, policymakers need to step up and see where like they can better support students because the like it really is a public health crisis. And like a lot of these students, they're dealing with intersecting crises and 
you know, it's, it's just a really hard time to be in college right now, considering just how much hatred has seeped into like every sphere of life. Um, so I would just say, you know, leaning on higher education leaders to see what support they need, as well as like higher education leaders lobbying for policy change and really communicating what their students are facing. Yeah. yeah I just I want to appreciate too that Rajan mentioned the importance of reproductive justice in this context. Like that's another huge attack on, on, on racial equity, the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, not just for the students who can get pregnant, but also their family. I mean, we know that the, the you know the students who are are most likely to need um, reproductive care are actually students who are already parenting, and to be able to you know have to care for and potentially have an additional child in college can totally take an entire family off track of being able to yeah. attend higher education. There are so many downstream implications. So it's just you know states like California and others that are they're now mandating the access for. Um, for uh, reproductive care on their campus, I think is is one potential policy solution going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things pressing on us, right? This is this was sort of done in the time of COVID and racial reckoning and uh, the aftermath of George Floyd's murder here in Minneapolis, where I am. And then we've added on it transphobic laws. We've added on DEI bans. We've added on it Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. We've added on so many different things. Um, there's there's a lot uh, to help students navigate, and then we're navigating these realities as well, right? It's not just implications for college students. Uh, Frank, what what would you offer in addition for some of these policy implications? Yeah, um, you know, a couple other things to consider. You know, some some states or some cities actually have rent control to to kind of you know manage the the cost of rent so it doesn't you know, spike um, at a rate that's that's um, unmanageable. I'd like to see us uh, talk about tuition control as a country. I think just the cost of higher education is just continuing to increase at an alarming rate. Um, and I think that, that there some policy interventions around that, you know, are probably warranted. Um, and then even related to that, just more transparency about the actual cost of attending an institution. So we know um, a lot of our community colleges um, went to a you know sort of tuition-free program for for many students, and that that certainly helps, right? It helps to expand access and provides access. Mm -hmm. But there's all these other associated costs that are not accounted for um, in that, right? And so I think you know just just kind of having more transparency about you know tuition's free, but this is what it's actually going to cost you. Um, I think that would be important. I like to see us um, do some work around streamlining, you know, federal financial aid. Right, FAFSA is incredibly complicated, um, you know, to complete, and so some, you know, some legislation or some intervention that makes it easier for students to apply for and access federal aid, I think would be good. I think we still need to do more around increasing uh, the Pell Grant, right? Which, when the Pell Grant was originally um, you know, instituted, it was the whole idea was that it would cover the full cost for most students, right? And we know that it only covers a fraction of the cost because of some of the many of the things that we've been talking about. And then, um, you know, even things like um, dual enrollment, right? And so we think about dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment, as it's called in some in some cases. That's a that's we, we don't think about that and implications for students who experience basic needs and securities. But one thing we know is that if students can get a head start into taking college coursework, right, it can build their confidence. 
students could actually transition to college with some some coursework completed. You know, they have some momentum. And so that could help in, in some ways sort of reduce the cost on the back end as well. And so just making sure that dual enrollment is available for all students, right? Not just high achieving students that are identified with their counselor as being good candidates, not just at, at high schools where there's a, you know, a, a good relationship between the high school and a local community college, but just really making sure that it's a resource that's available for all students, I think, are some other things that could really, you know, and, and collectively, you know, do, taking all the ideas and things that have been shared that can really probably make a difference in, in making sure that um, higher education is accessible and affordable uh, for a broader range of students. Go ahead, Bryce. I think you wanted to get one more in here before we move to wrapping up. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm such a policy nerd. I just wanted to praise- Nerd um, out. Your You're among your people. Go for it. <laughs> I just want to praise Dr. Harris bringing up the importance of like actually lowering the cost of college, um, right? I mean, that's the reason why students are experiencing disproportionate rates of basic needs and security is because they are also shouldering the cost of college. I mean, the, the, the rates of, of food insecurity among the student population are actually about three times higher than the population overall. Um, and then, of course, we see the race and ethnicity gaps um, therein. So, I mean, students are particularly burdened. And I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time in D.C., worked for for uh, Senate Education Committee. I don't need more, but I'm totally willing to, to point the finger back at sort of my, my former colleagues and not let Congress off the hook here. You know, it, we have a sort of a dysfunctional federal government at the moment, particularly a House of Representatives that can't really figure out its way forward. But it is so important for Congress to figure out how they can rebalance the relationship in higher education financing with states um, to actually invest in something that brings down the overall cost curve and makes uh, options affordable students. You know, there was a proposal for a major investment in, um, in free community college and state financial aid. Um, and HBCUs and, and MSIs across the country that didn't make it through uh, Congress um, late last year. Uh, but the next time there's a, a moment for, for Congress to get its act together, that's enormously important to be able to bring down the overall cost for students. Um, we can't keep doing the same thing we've been doing, funding the same programs and expect a different result. Yeah. Well, we are running out of time, uh, so we'll move to wrapping up. We always like to end asking this question. This podcast is Student Affairs Now, so what are you pondering, troubling, thinking, ideating around now? And if you want to share where folks can connect with you, that would be great. Uh, Dr. Frank Harris III, what are you troubling now? You know, this um, this has been a good, good conversation. Um, and I, I just see a need to to really deepen the work that started you know, in this report and, you know, really get a, a more in-depth, an even deeper understanding, you know, of how this issue is impacting students, um, students and families and communities. Um, best way to reach me is, you know, probably starting with my website, uh, drfharris3.com. Um, that'll get you to publications, um, you know, recent speeches, social media. Uh, and all those good things. Awesome, awesome. Um, and as you pointed to, the report is is lengthy. We've hit just barely the tip of the iceberg. We'll uh, include a link to it in the uh, in the show notes. So so thanks for pointing to that. There's a lot more to dig in here, a lot more depth than what we've been able to get to in this brief conversation. Rajah, what would you like to offer that you're troubling now? 
Yeah, uh, I feel like there's just so much going on in the world. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. smiling about it. Um, but there's just like transphobia, homophobia, racism. And then Thanksgiving, I said it earlier, but I just hate this holiday, like mm. how we're just sugarcoating the fact that this country was built on genocide. So a lot of things to think about a lot of things to do. But I feel like um, the fight is ongoing, and I'm glad that there are amazing activists and fighters amongst us who are willing to do the work, like Dr. Harris and Bryce and yourself and so many people who would be listening to this. So that makes me happy. Um, best way to reach me is by email. It's actually super easy. No one else has my name. So my email is rjaaraja at temple.edu. So if you have any questions, Feel free to reach out. Any sure. questions about the Hope Center's publications? Any other questions? That is the best way to reach me. Super simple. How about you, Bryce? What are you troubled yeah. about? You know, what's really sticking with me is just how important it is not to let the findings of this report or it's even its way of analyzing the, the problem and basic needs and security as a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we are, there's this report is analyzing the Hope Center data in a given year, but Hundreds of colleges are running student basic needs surveys. Some states are doing it, you know, in a coordinated way. Each of them should be analyzing the race and ethnicity gaps among their students and taking it on and seeing what it means for them. Um, Hope Center does that with colleges directly, help them sort of, you know, crack open their data and look at the gaps um, and implications. But, you know, this really should be happening every single day. Um, and helping inform policy going forward to, to be able to understand uh, disparate impacts here. Um, you can reach me uh, either on, on Twitter, I'm never going to call it anything else other than that, <laughs> at, at bmckib um, or bryce.mckib at temple.edu. Um, I'm happy to, to be in conversation with everybody. And thanks for having us, Keith. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks to all of you uh, for the good work around the report and the research and sharing it and implications for policy and using it to leverage for some change and for joining us in the conversation today. I think it's really, really helpful. So thanks to all of you for your leadership. And thanks also to our sponsor of today's episode, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including, but not limited to, career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the behind-the-scenes work to make us look and sound good. We love the support for these important conversations from our community. You can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to our podcast subscribing to our YouTube channel, or subscribing to our weekly newsletter announcing each new episode and more. If you're so inclined, you can leave us a five-star review. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a great week. Thanks all. <laughs>